This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Happy Father's Day from the Houston Open to all the golf dads. Houston Open's providing you an opportunity to benefit a great cause and give the perfect gift to the special dad in your life. All net proceeds go directly to the Astros Golf Foundation's COVID relief efforts. Go to HoustonOpenGolf.com slash tickets to donate now. Please keep in mind, packages do not include tickets to the 2020 Houston Open. If you order by June 17th, you'll receive it by Father's Day. There are a couple of packages available. Package one includes a Houston Open hat. That's a $50 package. Package two is $99. That includes the hat along with a sleeve of Houston Open Pro V1 golf balls and an invite to a special happy hour Zoom call with the 2019 Houston Open champion Lanto Griffin. To receive by Father's Day, must order by June 17th. Go to HoustonOpenGolf.com slash tickets to donate now. Back to Astropod, the official podcast of the Houston Astros. This is Todd Callis, joined by a couple of special guests today. Co-host is Steve Sparks. We've heard from him plenty of times, but for the first time on our Astropod, we're getting a chance to catch up with Brian Bogusevic. Uh, First of all, this is our draft show. So we're going to talk about Astros draft picks from the 2020 condensed draft. Also talk about personal experiences with both Sparky and Bogey about when they were drafted. Uh, Sparky in 1987 and Bogey a first round pick in 2005. So first of all, uh, guys, welcome. Sparky, as always, how you doing? Good to catch up with you. I'm doing great, Todd. Thank you very much. Uh, th- the draft was very interesting. A couple days to to, to kind of dive into baseball for a little bit and, and learn about some uh, new additions to the Astros family. That was fun. And Brian Bogusevic, who does pre and post game shows for us on AT&T Sportsnet. Uh, your thoughts? How have you been, first of all? And, uh, what did you think about this year's draft? I've been good, TK. Um, you know, it, w- it was an interesting draft, um, you know, with only being five rounds and the situation that the Astros were in with with a lack of picks in the first two rounds made for some, you know, interesting strategic moves that I think had to be taken in- into account. So they had the smallest uh, pool of money to be able to sign these four picks. So it did. It, Todd, it, it seemed like there was going to have to be a little bit of strategy uh, to make sure that the, they had enough coin to to get all four signed, don't you think? I think so. Uh, just the fact that there wasn't much in the pool compared to other teams. So the Astros end up with the 72nd overall pick, a compensatory pick for Garrett Cole being signed as a free agent by the New York Yankees. So 71 picks go by. The Astros' first selection is in round two, and they take Alex Santos, a high school kid, a right-handed pitcher, who grew up not far from Yankee Stadium. Uh, Bogey, what were your thoughts about the first pick of the Astros in this year's draft? Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting that with with the first pick, they went with a high school player. Um, you know, traditional strategy would say that if, if you're short picks, you need 
somebody that's more of a finished product. But I, I like, you know, if you look at pre-draft rankings, um, there were a lot of guys that had him in, in the 40s and 50s in terms of his overall prospects. So I think it's pretty good value at 72 to to have a kid. I mean, if you can if you can call falling to the second round falling. But um, I, I like the pick. Maybe maybe not as conventional as you thought they would do, but seems to have a lot of upside. Yeah, when you look at the Astros' pipeline of their best prospects, over half of them are right-handed pitchers. So I thought they might steer toward position players. But the wild card in all this, Todd, you can speak to this, but Zach Greinke uh, helped the scouts out with uh, a lot of the stuff that he used to do when he was with the Arizona Diamondbacks. He got really into the, the draft process. And maybe the Alex Santos signing had a little bit uh, to do with maybe a little influence from Zach Greinke. Because when I watch Alex Santos throw a baseball, man, he looks like a first-rounder to me. That, the, the way the ball comes out of his hand, his mechanics, his shoulders, looks like he's going to be able to fill out and gain a few miles per hour. Uh, everything looks uh, like there's a real high ceiling for Alex Santos. Yeah, and, and speaking of Zach Greinke, I think the fact that Greinke helped out in the draft couldn't have been a bad influence because a right-hand pitcher who's really a studier of things in the game of baseball uh, Alex Santos father had him throwing in sessions with the Rhapsodo machine and they would send out the results to potential uh, drafting teams to say hey this is what his numbers look like I know there's no senior year in high school I don't think most kids that were in the draft know what a Rhapsodo machine is that, that <laughs> uh, record record spin and and on both you know spin rate on your fastball and your breaking ball and everything. Not only did this kid know, but he used it as a tool to get drafted. So if that somehow appealed and was knowledgeable or, or was information that was known to Zach Greinke, I would think that would be an appeal for him and the Astros in general. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. You know, he Alex Santos only had one outing in for his high school uh, season this year, so so all of his work was done off of a mound, you know, in a controlled controlled setting. But using the Rapsodo machine and and knowing what these numbers mean and knowing how to make adjustments off of it, not only does it help in him get scouting and, and allow the scouts and the teams to be familiar with him and his stuff. But if you're the Astros and these are the, this is the data and information that you rely on in player development, it's got to be appealing to draft a player that's very familiar with these numbers and how they apply to him and how he can use them to his advantage. I thought the, the third round pick for the Astros, another right-handed pitcher, but a, a closer at one of the best college baseball programs in the country at Vanderbilt and in the conference call after the draft that uh, the Astros folks were saying right away uh, they see him as a starter what do you guys think well I know I know he started when he was in high school and then had had some injuries had Tommy John which sort of pushed him into the bullpen in college but if you have the repertoire to potentially be a starter, I don't see why not give him a shot to be a starter. I think you enter pro ball, you put him into a starter's role and, you know, give him the chance to succeed there and, and use the bullpen as a fallback plan for sure. As far as uh, fallback plans go, I, I love that. And, you know, and you're going to invest uh, a certain amount of money in a pitcher like this. And like you said, it makes all the sense in the world because he already has four pitches and he looks like he has the maturity, but just from some life experiences to go out there and handle handle the workload. But uh, but for Ty Brown, when you have that much money invested in him, you want to give him the most innings you can, don't you? 
Yeah, I would agree. I mean, uh, a guy that's uh, got that many pitches as a closer, you would think you can convert to a starter. Uh, why not see what his ability is as a starting pitcher? Because as you guys all know, most every closer in the game at some point uh, started, if not the majority, the entirety of their minor league career. So, uh, yeah, I could see the Astros using him as a starter and seeing what happens. And then if they have to, uh, converting him back to a reliever where he had so much success at Vanderbilt, it's hard to argue with any kid who comes through that program. He's pitched at the highest level uh, winning the 2019 College World Series championship as the closer. So uh, Tim Corker and products are usually a little closer to big league ready than most out of the collegiate program. And the backstory for Tyler Brown, I don't know if you guys got a chance, but in the Tennessee and a couple of years ago, uh, they wrote a story about uh, Ty Brown and and uh, just uh, maybe the Cliff Notes version uh, will tell you that uh, his dad left uh, their family when he was pretty young. His mom passed away from, from cancer when he was 13 years old, uh, basically in his arms. And then as a freshman in high school, uh, his girlfriend gave birth uh, when he was a freshman in college at Vanderbilt and, and the baby uh, had Down syndrome. So he, he's dealt with a lot early on in his life already. Yeah, I think something that you always have to take into consideration when you're drafting a player is the maturity level. You know, all of a sudden you're getting these kids out of high school or, or college, and are they adults yet? Are they going to be able to handle themselves in the real world? Um, and when you look at a guy like Ty Brown and you see the, the life experience that he has in the first 20 years of his life are greater than most of us will experience in an entire life. I don't think there's any question that the maturity is there. I don't think there's any question that he's going to be able to handle whatever is put on his plate. So I think that box is certainly checked and, and the Astros can be confident that they're getting a mature adult who's going to come in and, and, and be businesslike. Yeah, I think so those, that's a huge advantage. Yeah, those are the first two picks. Alex Santos, uh, round two. Tyler Brown, round three. And then round four, they stayed in the state of Tennessee. They stayed with a rival of Vanderbilt with a kid as an outfielder, Zach Daniels. Didn't do a lot his first two years. And then all of a sudden, this year in 2020, made a big jump. What are your guys' thoughts? I guess we'll start with Sparky on Zach Daniels, the fourth-round pick. Well, the first thing I thought of when I saw a little bit of the video, I thought of George Springer as far as the bat speed, you know, the way the bat was getting through the zone, uh, the body type, everything looked like uh, a football player in a baseball uniform <laughs> and uh, he can fill it out. He can run. Uh, but the power, I mean, I just, I, I just feel like, you know, they, they talk about his, his strikeouts are really high. They always have been. Uh, he was starting to figure some things out at, at Tennessee this season, albeit only in 55 at-bats or so. But uh, I think it, it comes down, and Brian, you speak it to this, it comes down to pitch selection usually with, with all those strikeouts and somebody this talented, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it comes down to pitch selection, and that comes with repetition. You know, you talked about him only having roughly 55 at-bats in this season that was cut short, but he only had about 60 at-bats the season prior just due to, to playing time. Um, he's a toolsy guy. Everything he does sort of jumps off the video as being super athletic, um, but it, he just he needs reps. He needs plate appearances. He needs to see lots of pitching. And, you know, this is, this is your classic toolsy player who has to develop, and, and I think the Astros are 
very confident in their ability to develop players and see him as a very high upside, risky but high reward type guy. Yeah. A guy who's got big scouting report numbers as a runner. Um, I was curious to look at his numbers in the uh, series that took place over at Round Rock, Texas, the Round Rock Classic at Dell Diamond. And he, uh, against really good competition, including the, the volunteers upsetting the number one team in the country, Texas Tech at the time, against Texas Tech, Houston, and Stanford, he batted second as the DH in all three of those games. And he put together a really good trio of games. And a lot of people were concerned uh, because he hadn't played against SEC competition this year and what he had done the previous two years. But you guys, I think, nailed it on the head. It's a kid with a lot of tools and a lot of upside. Yeah, with this pick, fourth round, uh, for the money uh, he's going to get, I think the upside potential is what excites you. And, it, and, hey, it's about player development. The Astros feel very strongly that they can they can help people get a lot better a lot faster. They they drafted somebody pretty raw in the first round last year, Jordan Brewer from the University of Michigan, uh, another outfielder. Uh, it was kind of raw. Uh, didn't have a ton of baseball experience coming into the draft. Uh, but uh, a couple of very interesting prospects right there uh, at the lower levels that uh, might rise pretty quickly. When you get down into you know the, the third round, fourth round, where 131 picks in, there aren't many sure things in a draft in general, let alone at this point in the draft. So I think to roll the dice on a guy who could give you a huge amount of upside if he puts it all together is definitely worth it. And the Astros no longer operate under the, you know, if he figures it out, he'll be whatever approach. Their their approach is now it's our job to figure it out with him. And, and the resources that they're going to be able to apply to Zach Daniels will certainly be more than enough to, to pull out any potential that's in there. So you have Alex Santos, first Astros pick of this year's draft, right-handed pitcher at a high school. You have Taylor Tyler Brown, right-handed pitcher, closer out of Vanderbilt with the round three pick. Round four, we just mentioned, was Zach Daniels, the outfielder out of Tennessee. So the fifth round and the final round of this year's draft, the Astros choose a kid who's a shortstop out of UC San Diego Division II program, whereas Zach Daniels Sparky struggled in the Cape, 37 strikeouts and 77 at-bats. Shea Whitcomb really shined in the Cape, 976 OPS in 34 games. And for a Division II kid, that was kind of what put him further up, I, I would think, in, in Astros scouts' minds, seeing what he did at the Cape, because sometimes the Division II kid doesn't get as much love uh, as the D1 kids, for sure. Yeah, he had to beg to, to get a roster spot on one of those teams in the Cape and went out there and played great. Um, they love his bat. They they absolutely love it. Uh, the only knock you hear about Shea Wickham is maybe a little light is, as far as his arm goes to stay at shortstop. So we'll see. You know, you you, you see guys, you know, play through some some soreness or some injuries uh, from time to time. So you you can't really get a great gauge all the time when you're looking year to year. So we'll, we'll see what it works out with Shea Wickham. But I, I feel like he was the last guy pick. He was a 160th pick. Last pick of the fifth round. And it's interesting to me that the slot money for him, and he'll get really close to this, if not the exact number, is $324,100. And the next guy that signed, uh, when they open it up to the free agents, goes down to 20000 <laughs> How's that going to work out, Bogey? I don't know that it is going to work out. <laughs> um, I just can't see 
anybody who has a legitimate roadmap to playing time somewhere next year, whether it be at a, at a, at a four-year school or at a ju junior college, is going to be willing to sign one of these contracts. Um, everybody from college is getting a year of eligibility back, so you're not really going to have many guys who, who don't have anywhere to go. So I think you're just going to have to find guys that are really hungry to play, maybe aren't happy with the situation that they were in and, and haven't found a landing spot somewhere else. But in, in terms of a monetary pull, I don't know that $20,000 is is much of a draw for anybody right now. TK, when they first talked about this, this draft only being five rounds, uh, we almost felt like, well, man, because of the penalties that the the Astros incurred, I mean, this this could be to their advantage because all of these free agents, you know, twenty thousand dollar cap, uh, it's an even playing field after the first five rounds. But you know, the the further you get into this, it's almost uh, a recruiting type situation to to get somebody to sign for. And number one, the biggest reason in my mind is, if you sign somebody for twenty thousand dollars, where do you send him? There's no place to send him because the minor leagues are shut down. Uh, so that's a, that's a big hiccup, I, I think. Uh, there might be a, a handful of guys signed for this $20,000, but it might be fifth-year senior types that don't have many options, like Bogey explained. It's kind of a wild, wild west. This is uncharted territories in so many different levels, and you guys mentioned a couple of them. The colleges uh, have so many players that are coming in and so many players that aren't leaving, there's going to be a glut for playing time at a lot of these big time programs. And then the other angle, which I don't think anybody knows the answer to right now, all these minor league players that have recently been released that are kind of in a state of limbo. Um, they're just kind of sitting out there and nobody can sign them right now. And, and I know eventually that's going to have to change, but without, uh, games to play this year, like Sparky said, Bogey, I'm not sure what these guys do if these minor league guys that have been released do resign. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of uncharted territory. There's a lot of guys sitting in limbo, um, and there's really no clear answer on the horizon. I mean, there, there's a lot of things that need to be sorted out at the major league level to get everything going, and you can see that the figuring out the minor leagues is sort of you know distant even in comparison to that so i don't know that there will be an answer anytime soon i could see you know teams stashing a handful of prospects at their spring training facilities for some developmental work but in terms of playing games i just don't know how much you know availability there there will be first of all and it's just going to stunt the growth for a lot of these either newly drafted players or guys who were released who are first or second year players who are looking to catch on somewhere else and, and get a second chance at playing that's what that's where the sales pitch is, is going to have to come in we talked to james click recently before the draft and he, he was really impressed by how creative that, that so many players and uh, people of the development staff have gotten to to help guys out in their workouts at home, you know, and they feel like there's been a large number of their players uh, uh, take advantage of, of some things that they could strengthen or, or do to to pick up spin rate or, or, or do whatever they they need to do to, to be better players next year. So they're just not sit, sitting idly by, and, and maybe that's part of the sales pitch. I just don't know who you target for those $20,000 free agents. Who is the real target there? And I just don't know that there's going to be any real gems. 
Yeah, it's going to be interesting, and I, I don't know the answer to that. The only thing I could come up with is maybe Ivy League baseball players, and there's not a lot of them that get drafted anyhow, but they're the ones that yeah. lost their senior year uh, and are not eligible to play next year. Uh, all the other conferences have allowed spring athletes to come back. Well, we've talked about the four uh, picks for the Houston Astros, and this is our draft show on Astropod. Uh, joined by Steve Sparks, a fifth-round pick in 1987 by the Milwaukee Brewers, and Brian Bogusevic, Astros' first-round pick, 24th overall in the 2005 draft. So we'll get into their individual stories in just a little while. But, guys, there's always stories that are outside of the Houston Astros picks. There's 29 other teams uh, that drafted players this uh, 2020 draft, even though it was a shortened, condensed draft. Any stories, Bogey, or any uh, – uh, thoughts about the the draft other than the Astros picks that stand out to you? Well, I, th- I think the the first thing that jumped out to me was the amount of, of college players that were taken, especially in the first round. I think almost two-thirds of the first round was college players, and half of the, the first 14 picks were college players. So not, not really a surprise when you talk about a, a, a draft that didn't have much in-person scouting. There's more information on those college guys. They're more of closer to being a finished product. But I think that was that was something that jumped out to me was, was how heavily college players were drafted. And for me, I, I was interested uh, in in seeing where Kingwood High School's Mason Wynn was where he was going to go and uh, what he was going to be drafted as. He's a two-way player, and Mason Wynn. Uh, drafted by the Cardinals, and, and they listed him as a two-way player. He's going to play shortstop and pitch, and, and they'll figure it out as it goes. But I don't know if you guys seen tape on Mason Wynn. This this guy's got an electric arm. I think he's only 5'9", 5'10", so Marcus Stroman's a, an easy comparison, but just electric stuff. And the other for me was a kid out of San Jack, uh, just a powerhouse junior college around here. And I think he... He went in the, the third round, and I can't remember who he went to, but he caught my eye because he was throwing a bullpen session just about a month ago, and his name's Will Little, left-handed pitcher at San Jack, and he was throwing 104 miles per hour in a bullpen session with a radar gun. So uh, can you imagine somebody that throws that hard from the left side, doesn't go until the third round? I mean, back when I signed Bogey, uh, if you threw anywhere near that hard and you were left-handed, man, you were probably the first pick. Oh, absolutely. There, there was nobody doing that, um, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I, I, I was drafted as a left-handed pitcher, and I was throwing, you know, 94, 95, and that was hard for the left side. And I saw the, yeah. video, you're, I saw the video you're talking about, and all I could think of was just nightmares of Araldis Chapman, just this big right. lefty throwing, you know, 103, 104. And a little bit out of control. How, how that lasts until the third round I don't know, but if he can get that dialed into the strike zone, that's a nightmare. Yeah, and I, and I believe it was three pitchers from San Jack going in those five rounds. That's that's a testament to a pretty good program there. Wow, that is pretty. That is impressive. And um, I, I also wanted to mention the the drafting by the Tigers of Trey Cruz, who's a Rice University guy, and we already saw the Bells do a three generation Major League uh, Baseball uh, deal. We saw the Boons. Three generations, Ray and Bob, and then, of course, both of his two of his three sons, Aaron and Brett. Uh, now the Cruises, Jose, Cheo, Jose Jr., and possibly Trey, 
will become major leaguer. So congrats to the Cruz family and, and good luck uh, to Trey if he decides to go on and, and, and start his professional career. And Trey was selected exactly one pick after the Astros' first selection. I was holding out hope that that might be their selection. But I think back to uh, what Craig Biggio was saying a few years ago. He was kind of hoping the Astros wouldn't draft Cavan so he could have his own identity coming up through the minor leagues. That's interesting. Yeah, there's 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 enough on a kid's plate when he gets drafted to try to, you know, make his way to the big leagues to to have a legacy in front of you that you have to live up to would be a lot more pressure. So, it'll be nice for these guys and for Trey to get out there and do his own thing, but what a great baseball family and what a what a great family of people. All right, guys, let's dive into these personal stories, which I love. Um, we're going to start with Bogey, Brian Bogusevic, 2005, Tulane, Green Wave. You're a two-way player. And Sparky mentioned uh, the local kid, two-way player who was drafted this year. Uh, you were you started 17 games your last year at Tulane. You also made 31 starts as a position player, 36 games overall. At that point, going into the draft, uh, you ended up getting picked in the first round. Were almost all teams on you as a pitcher? Yeah, so by the time the draft came around, it was pretty much consensus that I would be drafted as a pitcher. Going into the season, it was completely the opposite, and it was consensus that I would be drafted as a position player. Um, The way it ended up working out, I was hurt. I had a hamstring injury for the first four or five weeks of the season that year, which really limited me um, getting out onto the field, but I was able to make all of my starts on the mound. And I got off to a hot start. The The college programs down south are scouted heavily early on in the season because they start up before the high school um, seasons do. So by about midway through the season, I was viewed as a pitcher by everybody who, who was scouting me. We would see people, Bogey, sometimes uh, that were two-way players, and we were always a little skeptical. But just watching you, I mean, we understood. We knew that you were throwing mid-90s from the left side, so that was an easy call to, to naturally uh, be a pitcher. But most people usually start out as a position player, and their fallback is pitching. And you went the other way, right? Yeah, and and I didn't really have a say in which I did. And to be honest, I didn't really want to have a say. Um, at Now looking back on it in hindsight, I wish I could have just tried to do both and either either succeed at both or pick one or the other down the road. But that just wasn't something that was happening. You know, you sort of had to declare yourself as, as a pitcher or a hitter. Um, but I always said, I'll leave it up to the teams. You know, they're, they're major league baseball teams. They are scouting me. They have a, an idea of, of what I can be and what I can do at the next level. So I sort of handed that over in all my pre-draft meetings and everything. I always said, um, whatever you want me to do, I will do. And, you know, by the time the draft came around, that was be a pitcher. I've got a question about that. Todd, you can speak to this because you saw it uh, with Tampa a little bit. But whenever you draft a two-way player, what if they don't mature at the same rate or have the same success level at the same rate? You know, and you want to push them up as a pitcher, but they're not ready to handle uh, those duties as a hitter. I mean, that that becomes a problem, doesn't it? I would say I'm Brendan McKay was the most recent pick for the uh, Tampa Bay Rays out of Louisville, who is a two-way player. And, and I think, you know, 
if you're struggling in one area and excelling in the other, you would think that you maybe folk want to focus on that. But I, especially now, and Bogey mentioned when he was drafted, it wasn't really in vogue to be a two-way player. Uh, now with the success uh, of two-way players, Shohei Otani being the most prime example with the Angels, it's actually an added advantage with the, the new restrictions on your roster with uh, pitchers being able to be used as uh, both a pitcher and a hitter if you appear in enough games, and that can give you more flexibility on your roster. So I think you're going to see more teams uh, that have drafted two-way players, whether it's a Michael Lorenzen of the Reds or others that we've sp spoken about, uh, that are going to go that route because it, it is advantageous now. And unfortunately, Bogey, that really wasn't the case when when you were there. But you you were drafted as a pitcher and kind of had to convert to an outfielder at a higher level of the minor leagues than most guys uh, who are starting out, and that had to be a challenge. Yeah, I was already um, I was pitching in Double A when I converted to hitting, and I remember sitting down with um, Ricky Bennett, who was running the farm system at the time, and him asking me, you know, if you're going to start hitting, what level do you think you can hit at? And I told him, I said, well, you know, I haven't been to Triple A or the major leagues yet, but I'm pretty sure I can hit here in Double A. And I don't know if that was smart of me or, or whatever, but he said, okay, well, well, we'll give you a couple at bats back in A-ball just to get your feet underneath you, and then you come back here and play. So, yeah, I pretty much started right right in double-A, and, and my, my first full season of being a position player was in triple-A. How much pressure or how much scrutiny did you feel being a first-rounder? Yeah, that's, that's something that's real. Um, it's not as bad back then as it is now, you know, with, with Twitter and, and the ability to get all this information right in front of you. Um, but no, I, I got off to a really rough start. My first year as a um, professional player, 2006 was, was terrible. I don't think I, I, I didn't win a game as a pitcher the whole first half of the season. Um, and I had injuries and it was just, it, it was a nightmare. And I mean, there were newspaper articles and, and it was pretty obvious that this wasn't working out the way anybody had hoped. And, and you feel that, you know that, hey, you're the first round pick. You're supposed to be the guy that's leading the way for, for this draft class and for this farm system. You're supposed to be next in line. You know, at that time, the Astros are coming off a World Series appearance. So you're supposed to be the guy that in, you know, a couple of years is having the torch passed to you. So, you know, being a high pick it, it, there is pressure on you, but at the same time, you get the most opportunity. You know, if I wasn't a first round pick, I probably wouldn't have gotten much of an opportunity to convert to an outfielder and, and be given a second chance. So, you know, the good, the good and the bad come hand in hand. But um, yeah, there's, there's definitely added pressure to being a high pick. When, when you know there's expectations and you're not doing well, it's almost like you walk into the clubhouse and you feel like people are thinking poorly of you just because you're not you're not performing very well but that's not really the case everybody's worried about themselves and you just don't understand that at the time but those are the types of thoughts that run through your mind aren't they oh for sure and and you're right it, it's completely internal um you know you feel like you're a guy who's you know wasting everybody's time and everybody else is like oh man i can't believe they gave this guy so much money he's not even very good and whatever but you know that the other guys in the in the clubhouse want you to do well and at the very least are indifferent because they're worried about themselves. Um, 
but you still feel that pressure and all of us are competitors. All of us want to do well. All of us are used to doing well and performing at a very high level. So when you run into that for the first time where, where you're struggling and you can't really dig yourself out of it, it's a tough thing to get out of. And for the first time in your life, baseball becomes not fun. And, and that's, that's a weird place to be. Yeah. Always uh, interested about what was going on draft day. And I want to ask, Brian Bogusevic first, and then we'll get into Steve Sparks' draft story a little bit. But Bogey, uh, as a first-round pick in 2005, what were your expectations going into the draft? Uh, what was draft day like? Were you told that you were probably going to go uh, in the first round? I had a general idea um, that I would be drafted somewhere in the second half of the first round. But, you know, you take those things with a grain of salt, you, you know, one team passes on you and all of a sudden you can fall. So I had an idea that I might get picked in that range, but didn't know for sure. Fortunately for us, we were still playing. So we were in between regionals and super regionals and our regional had gotten rained out on a Friday, which pushed it back to Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And the draft I believe was Tuesday morning. So like there was no time for me to worry about it, fret about it, get nervous about it, because we were, you know, still in the middle of, of, a, of a run to Omaha, trying to get to Omaha. So it was actually a, a, a nice distraction from the draft process to have, you know, baseball still going on at that time. Sparky, I want to get into your draft. You uh, came out of Sam Houston State. And previous to that, although there have been some recent major leaguers, we've had Ryan Tapera and Ryan O'Hearn, Caleb Smith recently out of Sam Houston State. But prior yep. to your drafting, uh, I know Glenn Wilson was a Sam Houston State Bearcat. But were you were, were there a lot of scouts down there uh, at Sam Houston State? You went in the fifth round to Milwaukee. What was your mindset going into that draft? Were you pretty certain you were going to get taken somewhere in the first five rounds or so? You know what? Uh, our coach there, John Skeeters at the time, uh, had told my parents toward the end of the year, and I'd never never heard this until this point, but uh, he told my parents that I was probably going to get drafted between the fourth and the seventh round, and I was a senior. So I was ecstatic. You know, I if, I, if that was to happen, I, I was going to be ecstatic. So uh, I held out hope. Um, uh, I'd thrown pretty well uh, during my senior year, and I remember one day uh, that uh, he had... had it called an impromptu uh, scrimmage uh, with us. We were waiting to see if we were going to get an invitation to go to the regionals in Austin. And uh, we had an impromptu scrimmage. And I had gone out the night before, and I was a little woozy coming out to practice and, and stopped by 7-Eleven and got a six-pack of Hostess chocolate donuts and uh, wolfed them down. And I don't think I threw better than I did that day the, the entire season. It was unbelievable. So... Uh, I think that helped my draft status at that point. You know, this uh, kind of coming out of nowhere, just started pitching my junior year in college and uh, being able to get drafted in the fifth round was a, a dream come true for somebody who loved baseball as much as I did. Sparky, how uh, unusual was it at that point for a Bearcat to get drafted at, out of Sam Houston State? You know, I don't know the numbers. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think there was more than a handful of, uh, that, that had been drafted. You mentioned Glenn Wilson. There's a, a pitcher named Don Welchel, Fred Bean, and a, and a few others. But uh, there's been more in recent years. The, the program's really on an uptick in the last eight or ten years. But uh, 
up to that point, there had been a, a pretty good lull as far as guys getting drafted. So I felt pretty lucky. What What was your your plan? You said you were a you were a senior, so you knew you were going to sign if you got drafted. Right, were, yeah. were you Were you dead set on signing early and, and let's go play, or were you going to sort of wait? Like you, I'm sure you'd thrown a lot of innings, you know, during the season. Right. Yeah, I was close to 100 innings during the season. Uh, I didn't know the process at all. And a lot of us back then didn't know or have access to, to figuring out how this whole thing worked. You know, and the, and the scout came into to town where I lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, after they had called me and let me know that uh, I'd been drafted, show up a day or two later. I meet him at an embassy suites. He offers me $12,500 and I get him all the way up to 13,000 with some savvy negotiations <laughs> and uh, off I went. So I think both of you guys kind of share a, a similar trait, a bogey story. We already talked about a, a pitcher drafted as a pitcher converted to an outfielder makes it as an outfielder. Uh, and then you Sparky drafted without any knuckleball in your repertoire. At what point, uh, does the knuckleball show up? Because that obviously helped you eventually make your major league debut. You know, I was uh, initially walking on at Sam Houston State to be an infielder. I was an infielder in junior college in Oklahoma and ran a bad 60s time and, and lied and told him I was a pitcher, started pitching. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, it was always just trying to figure things out. And, you know, a few years into my minor league career, I was stalling out at the double at the A level. Uh, didn't look like I was going to get much past that. And uh, the Milwaukee Brewers, the team that uh, uh, I was with, uh, came to me with the plan. They said, hey, we'll give you a three-year plan to start throwing a knuckleball. We want you to throw it 30% the first year, 50% the second year, and 70% the third year, and we'll see where you're at. So I started back over in A-ball and uh, worked my way back up. And uh, at the end of the third year of that, uh, I was knocking at the door of the big leagues. How did How did – the idea to throw a knuckleball, how did they approach you about that? Had you thrown one before? Were you messing around with it? or no, Never, never. They just um, A couple of things. One thing is when you look at a pitcher, I mean, you have to, it's a very mechanical pitch. So I think having simple mechanics is important. I think shorter in stature is important because you want to stay behind the ball and not throw it downhill. And the other thing is, is the, the temperament, you know, you got to have somebody that's pretty relaxed. And I think, you know, we've seen pitchers who are uh, relievers that you see snot flying out of their nose when they come in there, probably not a good knuckleball candidate because you got to really relax to throw that pitch uh, consistently for strikes. So I think there's a few things like that. They didn't really want to release me at the time. They wanted to give me another chance. So uh, we went with it, but now uh, my first order of business uh, to tell you, uh, was to look at baseball cards and see how guys held it. Bogey gave us his story about his draft in 05 and, you know, the fact that he was playing up until the draft certainly helped him. And, uh, the scrutiny has become greater and greater every year up until this past uh, draft and in terms of how much people know about what's going on in the draft. What was the method that you found out, Sparky, that you were drafted in 87? Well, they just called me and I think they called me the next day. So, I think I probably got drafted on the second day uh, of the draft, didn't hear anything, got a little nervous and was kind of hanging around my house, just hoping really, you know, but didn't know anything. So finally got a phone call. Uh, we had some friends and family get together. We had a little party and it's kind of funny. Uh, I remember flying out to Helena, Montana, and I was on the, 
on a flight and I was behind this one guy and he had on a Gucci watch and he looked like an athlete, looked about my age. So I figured, man, this guy's going to be on my team. He must be a high rounder. He had this Gucci watch on. Come to find out he was a kid from Auburn who, who came from a little bit of money. He was our 18th rounder. Never got out of double A, but he intimidated me right out of the shoot because he had a Gucci watch. <laughs> Love these stories, guys. And I, it's so good to talk about the draft because you guys had the perspective now as broadcasters to talk about uh, the current draft and recent draft picks and, and what uh, is going on in the current uh, 2020 draft. And you're also able to, to reflect back on your times as draft picks. So. Uh, this is a great show. I appreciate the fact that we did this because a lot of fans don't really have the insight as to what goes on uh, with drafts. So I guess we'll do some parting shots here, guys. I, I know all of us are just so passionate about the game, and there's nothing more than uh, that we want than to get the game back. Uh, Bogey, before we let you go, any thoughts right now? I know the two sides don't seem so close, but hopefully uh, we can come up with some solution here and 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 get some Astros baseball on the air before too long. Yeah, I think that the conversations that are going on, you know, while we don't like them to play out publicly, are conversations that need to be had between the players and the and the owners because there's a lot that needs to be worked out. Um, it seems as if something is going to happen. What that is is sort of to be determined. But I think everybody, owners, players, fans, broadcasters, are just ready for baseball and, and just excited to get back out there and, and talk about real games. And I worry about the fans, Todd. You know, uh, coming out of the 1994-1995 the work stoppage, uh, how many... Uh, people abandoned the game for a while, and it took some really unusual circumstances uh, to get every everybody kind of back. And I don't know if those those are in place right now. But you, you think back to Cal Ripken in 1995; he broke Lou Gehrig's record for consecutive games played. Then there were a lot of new ballparks that were opening, uh, including Jacobs Field, uh, I think Camden, uh, and then of course in 1998 when Sosa and McGuire uh, had the home run chase. Uh, that kind of brought everybody back and, and kind of united everybody around baseball again. But it took a while, and it took some unusual circumstances uh, that fell into place for everybody to kind of get back on board. And with the pandemic and the civil unrest and, and the way things are around the country right now, uh, it's going to be tough. And, you know, it's going to be tough on us as, as broadcasters to try to, to sell the game and, and all those things. But we love it. And, and hopefully a lot of the fans will, will stay behind uh, their teams in, in the sport because it's a beautiful game. Yeah, well said. And uh, appreciate the time today, guys. We'll have another Astro Pod uh, coming up later on in the week with Larry Durker, who is Mr. Astro. Uh, talk about a guy who's got a history with the team. 18-year-old Major League debut on his birthday and a, a, <laughs> a man, manager and a broadcaster. That guy can tell some stories for sure. But on this show... Uh, both Steve Sparks and Brian Bogusevic appreciate the time. Uh, hopefully we'll, we'll not be talking about a draft uh, as much as we'll talk about real baseball soon. Uh, but until then, guys, thanks so much. You got it, TK. Thanks. Thanks, TK. All right. We'll see you on the next Astropod. With the 72nd pick of the 2020 MLB draft, the Houston Astros select right-handed pitcher Alex Santos II from Mount St. Michael Academy, Bronx, New York. My name's Alex Santos, and I'm from the Bronx, New York. Santos, a talented and hard-throwing pitcher. I'm out of my game after Marcus Stroman. 
when he's on the mound, he pitches with a lot of swag. Oh, what a breaking ball. The 2020 MLB draft. This is not fair right here. It's very exciting. Can't wait to celebrate with my family. As soon as I got picked, I got a little emotional, and you know, I can't wait you know, to go out there and show you guys what I got. You know you uh, grew up close to Yankee Stadium. Just tell us about your, your Yankee fandom and you know, having to get drafted by the Astros. You know, they've obviously played some big games against the Yankees the last few years. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, I've been a Yankee fan my whole life, but uh, I think I switched over to the Astros now, man. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, were you worried at all because your high school season got canceled and you didn't appear in a high school game? Were you worried at all? Um, no, not really. Um, you know, at, at the place that I work out and stuff, um, we have like the rap soda machine and everything. Um, and I took all my bullpens, threw a lot of data out there. Um, you know, I mean, it was a bummer I didn't have a high school season, but they say you throw a slider. And I saw one story that said you throw both a slider and a curveball. What is your breaking ball? And do you throw both? Yes, sir. I throw both. Yep. Which is go to of the two? Um, probably my curveball. Alex, who do you who do you like to watch pitching wise? Who do you compare yourself to? Either Jack Flaherty, you know, from like the mechanic standpoint, um, or Max Scherzer from like the mental side. Yeah, the signing process, just with the different rules this year, bonuses being delayed. I know you you have a college commitment as well. Just how do you how do you think you'll balance all that, weigh all that as you go forward and try to make that decision? Um, yeah, I think I would just you know have a family talk with, you know, my family, you know, my coaches, everything, and, you know, just talk about, you know, the best situation for me. But I think I'm, I'm leaning towards the Astro. Alex, we can hear a little fun going on in the background, man. Can you just kind of paint the picture for us? Who's with you tonight? What does it mean to have those people around you on such a big night for you? Um, You know, it's amazing. I have, uh, you know, I have my family, my close friends, you know, everybody that supported me through, you know, my baseball career. Um, and, you know, it's just really exciting having everybody here to support me. You know, one of the biggest moments in my life. What was the moment like when you found out the Astros were going to pick you? I mean, it was just amazing, man. I, I've worked my whole life for this. And, you know, when I got that call, you know, I was just super emotional and, you know, just really happy, excited. What, what excites you the most about coming into the system? Um, just that, you know, you guys have a really great history about, you know, developing pitchers. That was one of my main, you know, team main things I really wanted to go to a team for. Um, you know, I really wanted to go somewhere I, where I would really develop my pitching, just everything in, in, in total, the whole aspect. What's your biggest development pitch that you want to work on when you when you get to join the Astros? Um, probably my changeup. Quite a pitching uh, roster with guys like Justin Verlander, Zach Greinke at the top. What do you think about just being in a franchise that has that kind of standard of pitching? I mean, it's, it's definitely great, you know, seeing that you guys, you know, have pitchers that are to that caliber, you know, and I, I feel like, you know, you know, one of these days I'll, I'll get up to, you know, a Justin Verlander and stuff and, and definitely develop with you guys. Okay, Alex, congratulations again. Welcome to the team. Congratulations, you, Thank you, guys. Can't wait. Hey, Father's Day is coming up. Are you ready? Hi, everyone. I'm Steve Sparks. If your dad's a golf guy, listen to this. You can hook your dad up and benefit a great cause in one shot. You got to order by June 17th, and there's two options. All net proceeds go directly to the Astros Foundation's COVID relief efforts. Number one, 50 bucks, and you get your dad a Houston open hat. The logo on that is awesome. Package number two, that's $99. You get that hat, you get a sleeve of Pro V golf balls, and also an invite to a Zoom happy hour call with last year's champ, Lonto Griffin. So remember, you got to order by Wednesday, the 17th of June, and you go to HoustonOpenGolf.com slash tickets. Houston, we know these are uncertain and unprecedented times, but we will get through this. We 
We'll get through this together. Together. It is important that we all take the necessary steps to ensure safety of our loved ones and our community. You're the best fans in baseball. The best. And we love you. We love you. Baseball will be back. And we cannot wait to see you. Stay safe, Houston. For the H. It's for the H.